Okay, let's do this thing, the New and Better Podcast, episode 20. Here's the tease. This is how and why Jesus rules in the midst of his enemies. Congratulations. Through the powerful providence of a benevolent benefactor, you've stumbled onto this delicious digital bouillabaisse. Hosted by yours truly, hipster grandfather, David A. Holland. Here, we explore the too-good-to-be-true, poorly understood, badly neglected realities of what Jesus actually launched 2,000 years ago. A new covenant. A better covenant based on better promises. So, check your religion at the door. Grab a beverage. Grab a Bible. Strap in. Gird your loins. This is the New and Better Podcast. I mentioned that this passage was referenced seven times in the New Testament. Let's look at a couple of those things with a, with the view toward who or what are Jesus' enemies. If Jesus' enemies are going to be made a footstool for his feet, who or what are his enemies? Oh, we'll get to those seven references here in just a minute. First of all, Jesus' enemies aren't people. His enemies are spiritual and hierarchical. In Ephesians 6.12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. You know, in this passage of Scripture, there's clearly some hierarchy being referenced in these powers that we we are struggling against, that we're warring against. You know, the Bible shows that in in the angelic community there are hierarchies. In the angelic community, there's hierarchies in heaven. There were archangels and and then other hierarchies below archangels in heaven. So it's not surprising that when a third of the angels fell that those hierarchies remained intact. There's still, there's still hierarchy in the demonic world. But our struggle is not against human beings, but it's against rulers, against powers, and against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. So we know Jesus' enemies are spiritual and hierarchical. Cross-reference, somebody uh, flip over to Colossians chapter 2.15 and read that for us. Sword drill, Colossians 2.15. Okay, would you read that for us? In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. So, there are principalities and rulers and authorities, but in, in some sense, Paul tells us that they've been disarmed. He uses a lot of the same language here that, is that he, he used in Ephesians. And yet he says Jesus disarmed them. Uh, in a teaching last year, we, we kind of unpacked a, a theology of, of Satan. Uh, called it uh, the Satan and Unauthorized Biography. And in it we saw that through the cross... Through Jesus is basically doing battle with Satan in his ministry and life. Then through the cross, his his defeat of death, something judicially happened that disarmed rulers, principalities, and authorities. Disarmed Satan. 
Satan didn't cease to exist. This is what this is what Matthew Henry was getting at in his in his commentary. He said Satan is still around. He's just chained. What what in what sense was Satan and all the hierarchical the the demonic hierarchy? In what sense were they disarmed? They were disarmed of their legal authority. They were disarmed of their legal rights. From the fall to the cross, Satan was uh, operating, and his his hierarchy were operating on planet Earth with some legal rights with some legal authority, having been ceded to them by Adam and Eve. At the cross, the, the judicial work was done to disarm them of their authority. They didn't stop existing. They stopped having a legal right, legal sanction, to do what they were doing. This is how and why Jesus rules in the midst of his enemies. He has these enemies. They still exist. Remember, everything God does, he first does judicially, then he does progressively, then he does consummatively. He does diff- finally. So what the cross represents is the definitive, the legal, the judicial defeat of Satan. He's been disarmed. Uh, another passage from Paul says he, was, they, he just basically essentially led captivity captive and making a, made a public spectacle of them. So what, what has changed from this side of the cross to the other side of the cross is not the existence of the, the enemies uh, of Christ, but their, their legal rights, their legal, their legal sanction to do what they're doing. All right, what did Jesus attack? We're basically going to touch three bases here to determine who Jesus' enemies are. We've seen that they're spiritual. They're not flesh and blood. They're spiritual. There are essentially demonic hierarchies associated uh, with his enemies. And then, now let's put on a WW or WDGAA bracelet. Uh, what did Jesus attack? Well, he attacked sickness. That's pretty clear for, through his uh, earthly ministry. Almost everywhere he went, he healed. He healed them all. And we don't have to, I think we're all in agreement there. We don't have to, we don't have to debate that. Sickness was very much in Jesus' crosshairs everywhere he went. But he also, he attacked oppression, basically demonic oppression. Every time he encountered somebody who was d- demonically oppressed in some way or the other, he brought deliverance to them. So he attacked oppression. That seems to be one of his enemies. Uh, guilt and shame. On numerous occasions, people came to him with tremendous burdens of shame, and he always sent them away f- forgiven and cleansed and, and healed. The woman who was caught in adultery, uh, the woman with seven, uh, the s- seven demons, other people who came to him with great shame, he attacked that shame and that guilt in their lives. Uh, he attacked fear. Over and over again, he in- encouraged, admonished, and rebuked his disciples for operating in fear. He attacked it wherever he saw it. He attacked lack. Fishermen who fished all night long and didn't catch a thing. He would come to them and tell them to put their nets over on the other side of the boat, and all of a sudden they had a net-bursting catch. He and Peter are broke and in need of paying the temple tax, and he sends Peter out fishing, and Peter comes back with a gold coin from his fishing trip. Everywhere Jesus encountered lack, you, you've got a, a multitude of thousands of people who have been listening to you preach all day, and uh, they're hungry. And he tells his disciples, give them something to eat. Well, the, he atta- again, wherever Jesus encountered lack, he attacked it. And Jesus attacked death. 
He broke up every funeral he ever came across. And it was as, as a foretaste of his ultimate <laughs> victory over death. So what do we know about Jesus' enemies? We know that they're not flesh and blood. We know that they're spiritual, demonic, fallen hierarchies. Uh, and we know that in association with the activity of those powers of, of darkness, uh, that his enemies are sickness, oppression, guilt, and shame, fear, lack, and death, among, among other things. That's not an exhaustive list. Where else can we find insight into who Jesus' enemies are? We can find it in his declared mission. In Luke chapter 4, we see Jesus uh, in the synagogue uh, being asked to come do a reading, and he uh, goes up and he opens the scroll of Isaiah. And he unfolds the scroll of Isaiah and turns to a particular passage that he has in mind. He looks and finds the passage that he's looking for. Luke says it this way, And he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, the Jubilee. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Hey, uh, loads of good stuff up ahead. And your gateway to that yummy goodness is a just a little sidebar that we call page two. Let me quickly remind you about my devotional called Praying Grace for Women. Here's why I, a dude, wrote it. Far too many Christian women, beloved daughters of God, are spread too thin, exhausted, stressed out, burned out, or living with chronic anxiety. And for many, prayer has become a fruitless, frustrating, joyless exercise. Yet another box to check, another duty to perform. Well, I have wonderful news for the weary feminine soul today. There's another way to pray, a more effective way that produces a refreshing, life-giving connection with God's love, grace, and power. Get ready to discover grace for rest, grace for intimacy with God, grace for peace, grace for breakthrough, as well as the keys to praying from strength rather than struggling for strength. Okay. Now, back to the life-transforming content I'm serving up absolutely free of charge today. So, we know that in addition, this, this is essentially a, is, a, is a parallel to the fact that we saw through his actions that Jesus attacked sickness, shame, lack, uh, uh, fear, and death. And this is exactly what he's saying his mission was, was to proclaim liberty to the captive. Um, and recovery of sight to the blind, to heal, to heal blind eyes, uh, and so forth. So it gives us a pretty good idea of who Jesus' enemies were. The other places, I, and I, I ended up not getting this into the PowerPoint, I just want to point you to some of those other places that that language of sit here at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, the other places in the New Testament, it's mentioned. It's mentioned in Luke uh, 
uh, chapter 20, verses 41 and 42, and in parallel passages also in Matthew and Mark, where basically the Pharisees came to Jesus. They're trying to trip him, trip him up and trick him uh, with a trick question, and he trips them up with a trick question instead. And he quotes Psalm 110, verses 1 and 2, and says, you know, that says, David writes, the Lord says to my Lord, sit here at my right hand. And basically he gives them a brain uh, teaser that causes their brains to short circuit and for them to their heads to explode. But Jesus quotes this knowing that he's quoting it, clearly quoting it about himself. And so we, that's three appearances in the Gospels. In Acts, and I think we should turn over there, in Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches the first Holy Ghost-inspired anointed sermon anyone ever preached other than Jesus. It's the first human, non-Jesus human being to ever preach under the power of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. There, as you know, 120 were gathered in the upper room, and then uh, the Holy Spirit fell, and they all spoke with tongues, and then they run outside, and a huge crowd gathers and was trying to figure out what's going on. And then in Acts chapter 2, er- earlier in the passage, he, he preaches, and he uh, he refers to, uh, the Holy Spirit brings to his remembrance a, a passage, a prophecy from Joel about your sons and daughters prophesying and, and your, you know, your old men dreaming dreams. And, and um, he says, this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. So the Holy Spirit, Spirit brings that passage to his remembrance. And then there's another passage from the Psalms that he brings to his remembrance, and he preaches that. And then you get to verse 34. Actually, let's back up to verse 32. God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all witnesses of this. Now he is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven at God's right hand. So here's a reference to that passage of scripture, but he hasn't actually quoted it yet. And the Father, as he had promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us, just as you see and hear today. For David himself never ascended into heaven, yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies and make them a footstool under your feet. So here is Peter explicitly under the under the influence of the Holy Spirit. The moment Peter got filled with the Holy Spirit, the Old Testament suddenly started to make sense to him. Passage of scriptures that that had made no sense to him uh, prior, like right up into the point right before Jesus ascended, they're still asking questions like, "Is it at this time you'll restore the kingdom to Israel?" With clearly no understanding of what Jesus had, had had done or was about about to set in motion, and yet here, all of a sudden, Peter's had had the Holy Spirit poured out upon him for about fifteen minutes, and all of a sudden he's pulling up Old Testament passage of Scripture and unpacking them in the light of Jesus's ministry, and part of what he uh, part of that involved him pulling up out of his memory. Psalm 110, this passage, and saying, David never got exalted to the right hand of, of the Father, but Jesus has been, and and where Jesus is is what that psalm was uh, was talking about. It's also referenced in Hebrews 
chapter 1. If you want to flip over there, we'll look at that right quick. It's referenced just in passing because it's talking about angels and how Jesus' ministry is superior to that of angels. And so the writer of Hebrews says, And God never said to any of his angels, Sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. Therefore, angels are only servants. So basically, this is just a quick comparison of the superiority of Jesus to angels. But in order to do that, the writer of Hebrews references Psalm 110, uh, verse 1. And then the real clincher is over here in Hebrews chapter 10. We looked at that briefly last week. Just flip over there at Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, Tim, because the the writer of Hebrews is going to mention this again. He's talking about Jesus' priestly ministry, about how he offered his own blood. He basically became our high priest in the Holy of Holies. Um, How the earthly priests would offer their their sacrifices year after year. But Jesus was a once and for all sacrifice. So then in verse 12, he says, But our high priest offered himself to God, as a single sacrifice for sins, or once and for all sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. There he waits until his enemies are humbled and made a footstool under his feet. So this is the sixth reference in the New Testament to Jesus in, in, in relationship to this prophecy. And, and it's in each case... It's, pro, it's, it's depicted as a present reality, not a future reality. That it's, that not, at some point, Jesus isn't going to, to be sitting at the right hand of the Father, ruling, waiting for his enemies to be made a footstool for his feet. That at the time of these writings, it was a present reality. So, his enemies. We've got one final stop here. Oh, but let me circle back here for just a minute, going back to the fact that his enemies are, are spiritual. In Luke 10, uh, 18 and 19, the 70 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority <coughs> to tread, please note that phrase, on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing will injure you. Of course, serpents and scorpions are types in the Bible of demonic, uh, Satan and demonic power. But in case, there, in case we might miss that that's what that reference is to, he tacks on to that and over all the power of the enemy and nothing will injure you. So here we have this underfoot symbolism again. In this case, it's not under Jesus' feet. Uh, but under our feet when he has delegated his authority and power uh, to his people. Okay, neighbor, before we bring this rodeo to an end today, let's do page three. How about I share a little insight about how you can take a deeper dive into all I have on offer for you. When you can, Sashay on over to davidaholland.com. Now, you got to get that A in the middle there. That At davidaholland.com, you'll find a smorgasbord of stuff that will help you live the sweet life. That's a life of rest and hope and meaning. So until next time, 
Please remember, God is better than you think and you're more loved than you know. 